0: And welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Welcome back. If you're a returning listener, welcome. If you're a first-time listener, very happy to have you uh, listening and on board with the show. Uh, it's been a little while since I released the last episode. A lot going on, a lot going on in the world, a lot going on personally. I feel like I've said that the last couple of episodes, and the truth is that it very much is the case. But um, I'm very, very happy to have uh, an excellent guest on the line today to talk about a very pressing issue. Uh, the last episode, if you Listen to the last episode uh, was kind of a little, a little curveball in which uh, Joshua Frank, managing editor of Counterpunch, interviewed me about Venezuela, because I do write on the subject. I I was in Venezuela in 2015 for the, the previous round of elections, and I do have a lot of opinions and ideas about the situation there. But luckily, this week, you don't have to listen to me talk about Venezuela and all of those issues, because I have probably the best guest I could ever have on the subject. Uh, On the line with me, Eva Gollinger. She is an attorney and an author, well-known, well-respected on uh, Venezuela for a number of years. I've been following her, I don't even know how many years now, but um, famously was uh, traveling with Chavez, very close to a number of very important figures in Latin America. And we're going to talk a lot about uh, various experiences that she had and her perspective on it. I recommend the book Chavez Code Cracking U.S. Intervention in Venezuela. That's Eva's classic, and also we'll be talking about her new book, which you absolutely have to get a copy of, Confidant of Quote-Unquote Tyrants, The American Woman Trusted by the U.S.'s Biggest Enemies. An interesting title, an interesting book, and an interesting guest. Eva Gollinger, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Thanks for having me on the show. Eva, thank you for coming on and for all of the work that you are currently doing and have done uh, in recent years. Um, it, I think that anybody who is a Venezuela watcher and who was a Chavez supporter knows you and knows your work. So I'm going to kind of dispense with a lot of the background on, uh, Ch- you know, on Chavez and the Bolivarian revolution, which we talked a little bit about last week or a lot about last week. And I want to jump right into the current situation. Of course, we have the United States uh, Uh, in in many ways, saber-rattling against Venezuela, the Maduro government seemingly teetering on the brink, although depending on who you ask, uh, the world watching what the U.S. may or may not do, an opposition inside of Venezuela backed by external forces. Tell us about how you view the situation as it stands today on February 14th, 2019, as we're recording.
1: This is really the escalation of what's been an increasingly hostile and aggressive policy out of Washington towards Venezuela, really since Hugo Chavez was elected in 1998 and took office in 99, and, and immediately it became evident to the United States government, bipartisan, across the aisle, that Chavez was not going to be a cooperator with U.S. policy and hence why throughout his presidency there were multiple attempts to overthrow him through the coup in 2002, subsequent electoral interventions, oil industry strikes, ongoing and increasing um, multi-million dollar uh, funding through the National Endowment for Democracy, through U.S. aid, that went on and increased over the years, um, different attempts throughout that period to essentially remove Chavez from office and destroy the Bolivarian Revolution, all of which failed. And it wasn't really until his death in 2013 from an aggressive cancer that there was an opportunity, that the finally the Bolivarian Revolution was vulnerable without its leader. And in fact, it was, although, it, you know, the the supporters of Chavez did rally around his chosen successor, Nicolas Maduro, who we all knew very well. I worked closely with for many years and he he seemed to be the most um, adequate and appropriate for the job at that time, being more of a popular civilian figure um, within the higher ranks of Chavez's government, someone who who came from a humble background and was a bus driver, a union organizer, you know, had been in the government with Chavez at his side from the beginning. So, you know, a very trusted close advisor and someone who clearly shared at, at least seemed seemingly apparent at the time the same ideology and vision for the country. But from the day that Nicolas Maduro was elected by a very slim margin in 2013, the opposition contested his presidency and his legitimacy and in fact I mean, this this is on the ground in Venezuela. The opposition has maintained the generally the same perspective from the beginning, from the time Chavez was elected, which is that they negate the existence of the Chavistas and those who support the government and the Bolivarian revolution. And so that's been a principal problem. And it, I mean, it has a lot of roots in classism, in racism, and, you know, just merely the fact fact that those in the opposition, at least in the hierarchy and the leadership, come from the oligarchy in Venezuela, the elite upper classes and, and the wealthy economic powerful circles that ruled the countries for decades. And when they lost power to Chavez, it was a, a tremendous shock, and they've been trying to get it back ever since. So I, I just give that sort of lengthy explanation because this is a culmination of a, of a policy that's been ongoing on the ground in Venezuela from the opposition that's allied, of course, with Washington. And so I've been researching and studying and analyzing this and writing about it now for over 15 years and have been calling out and warning about this escalation from the time of George W. Bush through Obama, and that it was actually Obama that further intensified the aggression towards Venezuela, in um, by declaring in two 2000- thousand. First in in, in two thousand nine, uh, increasing sanctions, and then I think it was in two thousand fourteen that, um, that Venezuela was declared by Obama this you know extraordinary and unusual threat to national security, curiously invoking powers as a national emergency in order to impose further sanctions against Venezuela and certain figures in the Maduro government, and that opened the doors to a, even more aggressively hostile policy towards Venezuela. And then when, when Trump came in, it just really took off. I mean, the velocity <laughs> has been um, unexpected in, in the sense that we've seen an increasingly hostile policy throughout this whole time period for the past 20 years. But now we're seeing it really come to a, to a head, and in large part, it's because not not really because of Donald Trump himself or any ideas he has about Venezuela, if he can place it on a map. Besides knowing about the Miss Universe pageants and the number of Venezuelans who have won that over the years, but more so because of those who have his ear around him. And I I mean, I strongly believe that Marco Rubio has played a key role and made a deal with with Trump, essentially, that he would give Trump what he wanted by supporting his agenda if Trump would give him Venezuela and Cuba, (laughs) essentially, and, and, you know, turning Latin America around back to the right and getting rid of the leftists that remain in power. And so we, we've seen that happen somewhat on its own um, over, well, nothing really happens on its own, but still. I mean, the, the changes in the region have been pretty dramatic in terms of the the shift to the extreme right in countries like Brazil and Argentina, even Ecuador, a president who was elected as a, who was the vice president of former uh, President Rafael Correa elected on a leftist platform has now turned to the ultra right and is, you know, supporting the whole neocon agenda in Latin America, Lenin Moreno in Ecuador. But we've, so we've seen the shift in the region, which has increased the pressure on Venezuela and sort of opened the door to a more aggressive U.S. policy towards Venezuela. And so, you know, those around Trump, Mike Pompeo and now John Bolton, I mean, who's salivating over the opportunity to wage war anywhere. And and so then, you know, seeing just how they embraced openly, even at the beginning of Trump's presidency, the wife of Leopoldo Lopez, a, a far right opposition figure who's imprisoned or on house arrest now for Inciting violence and insurrection against the government, causing that resulted in the deaths of over a dozen people in um, 2014, and then again in 2016, and and again now, (laughs) the similar situation occurring. Considering that the individual who has now taken the reins of leadership of the opposition is essentially a a pupil of of Leopoldo Lopez or a, a close. Um, you know, uh, ally of his and his same right wing party, Juan Guaido. And so to see how that embrace has happened at the highest levels, you know, even though the the Obama administration was aggressive towards Venezuela, but not as hands on as we're seeing now with Trump, we saw some of that with the Bush administration um, meeting at the White House with opposition figures, you know, openly supporting the coup. But then they, they were sort of on, off, on, off as much of a priority for them as the war on terror in the Middle East. Whereas now, you know, Trump is sort of pulling back from some of that and is looking for other opportunities to make an easy gain. And I think he was sort of sold on the idea that Venezuela would be a quick and easy. Easy operation, which of course is is was a false premise to to begin this um, you know regime change mission on at the beginning of this year. But I mean, it's been a culmination of things, and then the Trump administration increased the sanctions over the past two years against key figures in the Maduro government as well as um, state enterprises that have aided in crippling Venezuela's economy and increasing this economic crisis the country's facing. And when you know the Maduro's second term after elections were held last May and and the opposition boycotted so he easily won the election when his second term began on January 10th was when the opposition set into play this plan along having already the support of Washington because we now know from a lot of press reports. That, you know, these meetings had been ongoing over the past few months between the opposition leadership, Juan Guaido, and others um, in Washington and in the Trump administration, that they would clearly support any kind of effort to aggressively oust Maduro after the start of the second term on January 10th, which they would not recognize. So that I mean that sort of set off the chain of events that led to January 23rd, where Juan Guaido declared himself the interim president, invoking the powers as a as the head of the parliament, the National Assembly in Venezuela, under the constitution, saying that there was a vacancy essentially. In in the presidency because they failed to recognize Maduro's second term. And I mean, that's sort of their legal justification for what they're doing, though it's quite questionable. Um, but to receive the open and direct backing of the Trump administration followed in line quickly by Canada, several European nations, and then a huge chunk of Latin America, particularly om- almost all of South America, which is a dramatic shift again from what it was just a few years ago, when we would never have imagined something of- like that happening, because you know there was a, a growing movement of Latin American unity, a South American integration, and and mainly progressive leadership that has changed, and so therefore enabled a situation where now we're seeing a majority of countries. In in South America, particularly supporting a regime change operation, and that could possibly include um, a U.S. intervention component as a military component, and we saw precisely that possibility uh, increase when Trump named um, Elliot Abrams as a special envoy for Venezuela for the Venezuela regime change operation, known you know war criminal and and um, uh, essentially mastermind of the dirty wars in Central America in the 1980s, and who was also involved behind the scenes in the 2002 a coup against Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. So, I mean, Elliot Abrams... Is very familiar with Venezuela. He's worked with the same opposition before, and he was involved before in a regime change operation against Maduro's predecessor. So, I mean, it's it couldn't be clearer that that's. In fact, they've come out and said (laughs) almost on a daily basis that, you know, from the White House that that's what their goal is is regime change. Now it's building up to the point where it could become a military operation. Of course, there's a lot of rhetoric out of the White House. Trump saying it all the time, you know, yes, a military option's on the table. Well, we don't know what we're going to do. Then we hear, well, contingency plans are drawn up because they always are for any kind of military operation against a strategic interest for the U.S. But would it would it actually take place and how would they foresee that? And one of the main points I think that's important is that there's been so much distortion, so much manipulation and biased coverage of Venezuela over the years, that the mainstream media quickly caught up got caught up in this frenzy of regime change in Venezuela as supportive of it, which is not surprising because they supported the coup in 2002 as well, big op-eds and editorials in the New York Times, Washington Post, Chicago Tribune, you know, supporting Wall Street Journal, supporting a coup d'etat against a democratically elected leader because they didn't like him. I mean he wasn't favorable to the US agenda. and now we're seeing that again, um, even though as the time drags out more and it's clear that the Trump administration, you know underestimated their hand in Venezuela and also the support that Maduro had. But at the same you know so now there's some questions taking place within media and analysts and commentators in the mainstream in, in, in the US particularly. But at the same time, one of the reasons why they were so quick to jump on the bandwagon, applauding, you know, this regime change operation, so open and direct from the same government that they've been highly critical of, you know, for the past two years, um, is because of the fact that the majority of the voices in Venezuela have been left out of the narrative in mainstream media so the idea that there could be supporters of Nicolas Maduro or that the military would stand by him wasn't even a second thought in in most of the media and amongst analysts and think tanks in the US because they primarily communicate and and, vi- and and give, you know, visibility to those in the opposition, those who speak English, those who are U.S. educated, those who have connections and relations in the United States. So, you know, it, that's part of what's been going on, is the fact that the Venezuelan people were underestimated because they're excluded from the narrative. And that, that's not to say that all in Venezuela, and I'm sure you, you spoke on this before in a, in a previous Um, podcast that, you know, there's a lot of discontent amongst those who have supported Maduro and, and were Chavez supporters before, but a majority of Venezuelans do not support a foreign intervention in their country. They do not want the right wing opposition back in power, which is why they haven't, The opposition hasn't been successful all these years. And again, I mean, one of the other factors that's key here is that the opposition that we talk about it as this one force, it's not a cohesive organization. It's made up of over a dozen different political parties of different ideologies, all with different leadership that all want to be president. So there's a lot of division, there's a lot of diversity in opinion in Venezuela, and there's pretty much a collective, um, you know, uh, idea against intervention from a foreign government, and particularly against any kind of military intervention. I mean, Latin Americans overall are skeptical of U.S. foreign policy anywhere in the world, but particularly in their region because they've been victimized by U.S. aggression for you know over a hundred years. So, I mean, that that's part of what's been going on is while everyone in, in the United States was quick to jump on this. Oh yeah. Okay. Maduro's out. This Guaido is in and he's the new president and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> in the end, the Venezuelan people on the ground are going, what are you talking about? You know, like Nicolas Maduro is our president. The armed forces are standing by him. There's discontent. Yeah. The opposition can rally their supporters and there's a lot of them and they, they do want change, but most are not, you know, looking forward to any kind of bombs dropping on their communities. So, you know, I think that there's there's still a very complex situation there on the ground that is not going to be resolved by some quick and easy regime change operation
0: well <laughs> there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack in those comments so um, in the interest of time, I'm not. I'm not going to try to pick it. Uh, uh, a bunch of the points that you made, I think that you made them very well, and uh, we could probably go for many hours dis- dissecting each aspect of this story. But in the time that we do have, I want to. I want to point to one uh, historical moment that you kind of touched on, and just get your your take on it because Chavez dies. Okay, and this was a. This was obviously a. a, a tragic and sad and momentous sort of watershed moment in, in 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 recent Venezuelan history. And Nicolas Maduro takes over and one one would then, you know, one would then read the sort of mainstream narrative of this and say Maduro takes over and because of corruption and mismanagement, everything collapses and Maduro is terrible and it's time to get rid of Maduro and the government, and et cetera, right? But the reality is that there were a lot of factors, uh, some of which were within Maduro's control, many of which weren't within his control or within the control of the government that contributed to the situation. Obviously, as you mentioned, uh, the sort of belligerent posture from the Obama administration with the sanctions and then the the extraordinary, uh, rather stunning classification of Venezuela as a national security threat, which had the effect of not only having a psychological impact on potential investors and so forth, but really freezing Venezuela out of a lot of international finance, a lot of the international markets, so uh, making it more and more difficult for Venezuela to get investment, liquidity injected into the economy, and so forth. And then, of course, I think it's also important to note that in 2014 and 2015, global oil prices collapsed. And with Venezuela having an economy so dependent upon oil revenue, for many reasons that we could go into, but uh, that fact and then depriving the country of something like 80 percent of the revenue, meaning the loss of the price of oil, I think that was also a devastating blow to Venezuela's economy, which. contributed to this sort of downward spiral that we've seen in terms of the economic situation there. So can you comment a little bit about the economic deterioration and how uh, Maduro has been kind of implicated in that, but also the need to see the global picture?
1: Venezuela has been dependent on oil for over half a century really but it, you know oil was nationalized in the country in in 1976 so it's not something that that Chavez did but certainly when Chavez was in office one of his major objectives was to diversify the economy he wanted to recover Venezuela's other industries Venezuela used to be at the turn of the 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 you know during the 19th century and into the at the turn of the 20th century or I don't know what the proper term is but in the early part of the 20th century and in the 19th century Venezuela was a major agricultural producer and once the oil was discovered and began to be mass produced all of that was left to to waste and they became a big importer of food products because they could afford it. But it was detrimental to Venezuela's other industries, as well as, you know, there's a lot of other natural resources in the country. But that was one of Chavez's big goals. He had a very um, long-term strategic vision where the country's industries that were primarily located in the Orinoco River Basin, which is where all the major oil reserves are um, that are a heavy crude that needs to be refined. That's difficult to refine. But in that area was to, and, and it's also full of all these heavy min- minerals and gold and aluminum and all kinds of stuff. Was to utilize those resources and invest in the western part of Venezuela, primarily the southwestern, which is more farmland, plains, fertile land. And that was he. He always had this big map in his situational room in the presidential palace of the country, and he had all these you know, diagrams on it, on how the country would be developed using its own resources and where they'd be building these industries. And he traveled the world and I I had the privilege of going with him on a lot of trips and made all these deals with, you know, for technological transfer from China and India and throughout, you know, Eastern Europe and around the world just to try to really build up Venezuela's industry so that precisely the next time that there would be a drop in oil price, that the country wouldn't fall into another economic crisis. Unfortunately, that was a dream that was never achieved in large part due to corruption. And it wasn't that it was the blame of Chavez, it's that Venezuela has a historical culture of corruption precisely because of the oil wealth and coming into the country. I mean, there was a time when we're talking $150 million a day at least that were coming in through the state-owned oil company. And because of the way the country has run for so long, even during the time period when they were trying to root out actively that corruption, the culture remained in place. And so, you know, it just became economically... Um you know, not un, un, unprofitable for those in that oil industry to, to invest in and, and sh- try to make a shift towards diversifying the economy. So when Chavez died, when he fell ill, actually initially in 2011 and 2012, there were decisions that had to be made because the price began to drop. There were issues going on with the currency. You know, Venezuela had a, had a dual currency system that was not functioning well, currency controls. And there were a lot of decisions that had to be made, but with his illness, everything basically was frozen in the country and no one wanted to make decisions and he was incapable of making them. He was undergoing very severe treatments for his aggressive cancer and those around him were too emotionally invested in Chavez and his leadership to make the decisions. And primarily one of those people is Nicolas Maduro. So in that sense, he has a lot of responsibility for not making the decisions when he had the opportunity to that would have saved Venezuela from a lot of the economic crisis it's experiencing. And so in that sense, There was, you know, a mismanagement on his part. But, of course, I mean, the the global economy contributed, the oil prices contributed, the sanctions from the U.S. And it's important to point out, too, that sanctions actually began in 2006 against Venezuela under the Bush administration. For the first time, Venezuela was classified as a country not fully cooperating with the War on Terror this is something that Bush, the U.S. government does every year, and uh, they, you know, classify countries in different areas. And so that particular um, classification, which was related to Venezuela's relationship with Cuba and Iran, for example, but it it, um, it implemented a prohibition on the sale of any military equipment to Venezuela from the U.S. And so Venezuela had historically been dependent on the all of its equipment was from the U.S. So Chavez, that's when Chavez began relations with Russia, for example. Chavez said, fine, you don't want to sell us replacement parts for our equipment. You're not going to leave us defenseless, so we're, we're going to make deals with Russia." and and that's really what started it it was really the fault of the bush administration that led venezuela to russia and they began buying their equipment from russia but those sanctions you know had a had a larger impact on venezuela's industries and its military industries and and the equipment for uh, its its you know products in the in the country so that from that time period on there was a that contentious really economic relationship with the us and always the fear of you know, will our assets be um, somehow affected by the U.S. policy towards Venezuela, which, of course, now we're seeing happen? And that was always a fear of Chavez's and a concern of the Venezuelan government was what about Citgo, which is, you know, Venezuela's company in the United States? And they have huge assets, had um, more before before Chavez started pulling them out because of the fear that they could be you know somehow captured by the United States and taken from Venezuela stolen essentially so part of the crisis came from the oil industry part was the chávez's illness the mismanagement and then when maduro took over there was a pure a, a constant instability in the country and it's been that way ever since he, he as i said before his presidency has been contested from the beginning and and so he's been dealing with crisis after political crisis after political crisis And, you know, and then went through all kinds of, um, advisors that gave bad advice on the economy. So, and then internally the corruption grew because there was a lot of, um, fear about what was happening in the country. And because again, of that culture that existed within Venezuela from times well before Chavez was in office, there was a lot of plundering of the state industries and, um, you know, just overall dysfunction amongst them. And I mean, I would say there's a crisis of leadership in the country that that was to be expected with Chavez's death, just as the opposition has had a crisis of leadership from the beginning. (laughs) And so, you know, that has really um, incapacitated Venezuela in many ways in terms of trying to get out of the rut that they've been in. But also, I mean, there is a lot of responsibility on Maduro. He brought back into government people that Chavez uh, essentially banned from government because of corruption, and he returned them to high-level positions, even some of the highest-level positions th- that are, you know, still in office today who are notoriously corrupt. And so that that is also demoralizing for a lot of, you know, of of his supporters to see him so openly embracing those that it's just common knowledge amongst, you know, people in Venezuela that they're, they're, they're corrupt. And, and, and then to see others that, you know, we've, we've seen the, um, the, the indictments around the world. And I mean, some of it, you could say could be trumped up charges, no pun intended, but others are, you know, it's a real thing. The oil industry, um, company Pedavesa, was plundered, under a lot of the previous leadership and, and even that during, you know, the initial years of of Maduro's government, billions of dollars embezzled out of the country. And some of Chavez's um, cabinet members denounced it, you know, $20 billion stolen from during, uh, from a a sort of a, a a current, a fraudulent currency scheme money that, and we see these, you know, wealthy Venezuelan businessmen with, um contracts with the government living in Miami now some of them have been arrested or, or are you know have indictments out on them and have fled the united states but had you know billions of dollars of properties and bank accounts in in the us and in other in fiscal paradises around the world so you know, there's a lot of that is uh, is is true and and has been a cause but certainly i mean the the sanctions have played a massive role because, I mean, some of it, I would say, and not to extend on this too much, but is a misplaced decision-making on the part of Maduro's government. For example, there were targeted sanctions put in place by the Trump administration against key members of Maduro's government that run the Central Bank of Venezuela or the financial arm of um, PDVSA and or the treasury of venezuela and so the u.s government said we're sanctioning these individuals so no u.s people or companies can do business with them so maduro is not going to say well i'm going to fire my people because they're sanctioned by the u.s government because venezuela is a sovereign nation but it essentially meant that those companies couldn't do business with venezuelan entities because they were led by individuals that would have to sign off on documents that were sanctioned so i mean it even though they were targeted sanctions they had a wider impact on you know venezuela's economy the venezuelan people so therefore you know that that in, in increased the impact the devastating impact on um venezuela's economy leading to you know shortages of products and all kinds of things but there were there were other issues internally that that caused a lot of that and now the sanctions that have been put on Venezuela's oil industry directly by the U.S., of course, are, and, and the freezing of Venezuela's assets um, around the world are, are now having a, 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 you know, a, a tenfold of impact of devastation on, on the Venezuelan people, not so much on the government, but on the people.
0: Yeah, and isn't that always the case with sanctions? I mean, sanctions really, in theory, uh, target, you know, leadership, people in leadership positions. But in reality, they really, uh, in many ways, foment chaos and and destabilize the very social fabric. And of course, the economy and the political situation tends to follow suit. And uh, that's a pretty well-known quantity. The United States has done that repeatedly, whether it was in Iraq or elsewhere uh, around the world. Um, but I know we're very short on time. I and mean, I do want to get to your new book, but I, I just want to follow up on one point that you made. Uh, you mentioned Sitgo, and uh, I wrote a piece in Counterpunch a couple of weeks ago now. And uh, as far as I know, nobody else is really talking about this aspect of the story. Uh, and you know, if you're not, if <laughs> if this is too much of a curveball, then you just let me know. But uh, one thing that I that I wrote about is the fact that uh, most people may have missed that a couple of years ago, the Maduro government, starved for cash, uh, essentially took a loan from the Russians and in return gave a 49.9% stake in Citgo. Now, what that actually, I think, translates to for the Russians is not so much control of oil because they're, of course, one of the world's leading oil producers. They're the main supplier to Europe and and, and uh, elsewhere in the world, and they're increasingly becoming active in Asia and stuff. But I think that what the Russians saw in Venezuela and in Citgo was an opportunity to gain political leverage over the United States. And it seems... Seems to me, this is just my perspective, that that's what they went for. So, $1.5 billion in cash to the Venezuelans in exchange for a minority stake, but a very large minority stake in Citgo. Now, what we saw, uh, Reuters published a story in early 2018 that a, US, that a consortium of US investors was deeply concerned about Russia's involvement in Venezuela's oil and what that meant politically. And so they were concocting a scheme to purchase that loan to basically, in exchange for one and a half billion dollars to the Maduro government, they would seek to basically vacate the lien and vacate the terms of that loan. And that hasn't come to pass. But instead, what we've seen is within 10 months, a regime change operation, a coup and so forth. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the international implications of what we've seen in Venezuela, because from my perspective, it does seem that the vultures are. Are circling what they seem to, what they seem to think to be easy prey.
1: Well, there are major legal implications, and I, I could see. I'm an attorney, so I can see a whole you know, litany of court cases <laughs> on the horizon in, in many different areas, because it, the whole concept of setting up a parallel government when there's an actual legitimate government, no matter, you know, legitimacy is a question that that can be further analyzed in the case of Venezuela. But certainly Maduro, no matter what those in media or in the White House may say, or who they're recognizing as president Maduro is the legitimate president of Venezuela, not just because he went through an election, but also because he's recognized by, um, you know, the millions of Venezuelans who voted for him as well as the armed forces. And he controls the, the government and all the state institutions. So, you know, he is in power by setting up a parallel regime and then a foreign state being the United States. And then, you know, it's allies such as in the UK or Canada Seizing the assets of that country and pr- handing them over because that's what essentially the Trump administration has been saying they're doing to this parallel government that's not in charge of government that has no control over government. I mean that 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 is dangerous legal territory. And I, I actually I saw um, a, a news item today where there's a, a U.S. law firm that's handling some legal cases for the Venezuelan government regarding some of their assets and and you know. Cases that have been in the works with with U.S. companies saying, well, wait a minute, they're not sure anymore if they're going to represent who they're representing. Are they representing the Maduro government or are they representing this parallel state? (laughs) And then we have the question of embassies because the U.S. is saying they're recognizing the opposition ambassador in Washington who doesn't have an embassy when there is there's not a current Venezuela ambassador here, but there are diplomatic personnel. And there's a Venezuelan embassy that's owned by the Venezuelan government. And, and so, I mean, there's just all these other legal issues that are very complex around this situation that, you know, are, are unresolved at this stage. And it, it's just not so clear cut. But on the sitco matter, I mean, that's one of them. So the U.S. government has essentially seized Sitco's assets in the U.S. And this um, opposition parallel government is setting up a, a, a board of directors for sitco, naming personnel, whereas They already exist (laughs) and are in control of actually Citgo's operations. And as you're correct, Russia has a 49, over 49% stake. Mainly, I would say the Russians are no fools, so they wouldn't, you know, just choose Citgo for no reason. Obviously, there's interest in in the United States, but the other main factor is money. That's Venezuela's primary source of liquid cash, I mean, they're not getting money really from anywhere else. They're only getting it from sick out of Citgo in the United States. And it's deals that they're making with mainly U.S. companies because most of um, the other deals Venezuela has are in-kind trade or are already debt. You know, they've taken out loans and they're paying it with oil. Or it's like with Cuba where they it's a cha- exchange for services. So you know, the, there's a lot of interest there in terms of that's Venezuela's big chunk of money <laughs> is in Sitco and now Russia is you know that's why they took it. They said this is what we need to secure the the uh, the debt that you've acquired from us. I mean, and that's another factor that's important to note. Hugo Chavez paid off Venezuela's external debt. He he ended the relationship with IMF and World Bank, and you know essentially maduro has indebted the country now more than maybe it ever was before i'm am not sure on those figures but that that's a major shift away from how chavez was running things and so that goes again to you know, what is really going on and what is his economic plan or vision? And it's hard to see that there's really is one there formulated. Um, but but certainly, I mean, I think there are, ama- I mean, nobody would care about Venezuela if it didn't have oil and other natural resources that are hugely important to major multinational corporations. And if it wasn't, you know, a geopolitical, geostrategically located country that the U.S. wants to control, I mean, do not forget. And I think it's important uh, to emphasize in any conversation on Venezuela that Venezuela has maritime territory with the United States at Puerto Rico. That you know Venezuela is surrounded by U.S. military presence in Curacao, in um, you know the 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 um, the Dutch island. Or formerly, okay, well, they still are part of the kingdom, but. The, the U.S. maintains air bases on Curaçao, some on Aruba. It has military presence all throughout Colombia, it has military presence on Trinidad and Tobago in Brazil, you know, and other areas throughout the, the Caribbean. And then, of course, you know, Florida is right there, Miami. So, you know, there it, and there's been a lot of military movement. Cuba, the Cuban government was denouncing it. Um, just over the past few days, that the military activity going on in the Caribbean is unusual and clearly is, you know, a sign of a buildup towards some, maybe a contingency plan or reconnaissance missions that are taking place to see what could be done. But I think, you know, it's critical. And I I would actually go back and not to be a conspiracy theorist, but one of my second book I wrote, actually, that was published by Monthly Review Press, Bush versus Chavez, Washington's War on Venezuela. I cover in there a chapter on um, a military game exercise that NATO participated in and led, that the U.S. participated in, even though they deny it. That was called um, Plan Balboa. And Plan Balboa, this was in like 2001. Plan Balboa was a plan to invade Venezuela using the U.S. military bases. In at the time, they still had a a full location, a forward operating location in Panama. So it was out of Panama, Puerto Rico, um, Colombia, and then... To invade Venezuela and take out a leftist leader. That was the, that was the, and take control of the oil uh, industry in the Western part of the country and essentially divide the country. And, you know, it was 2001 when this was conducted, but of course, any military exercise is always a sort of contingency plan for a, a, a potential operation. And clearly that was. Re- really outlined as some type of, you know, what, what could take place were it necessary? And now I think, I mean, we're seeing that here we have it being set up and here we have direct rhetoric coming out where they're saying, we can do this. We may do this. This may happen. you know, that are, and I, I, you know, I think that the Trump, Trump is someone who doesn't like to lose. We know that it's all about the winning. And right now he's not winning on Venezuela. He's not winning on very much in this country. And he's been sold on the idea that Venezuela is an easy win for him. And so I, it seems to me by surrounding himself with war hawks, like Bolton, Elliot Abrams, Marco Rubio, Pompeo, and the rest of them, that even though there's a lot of hush-hush whispers in their ears saying, don't do it, don't do it, you know, it's not going to work as you think, I believe that they, they may move in and try to do it. And, you know, we, we could see that happening over the next couple of weeks. How that would play out is is unclear. But I can say, and you never know what people would do in the moment of some type of attack, um, when, when their lives are, are threatened. But certainly, the Venezuela that, that I knew and lived in for over a decade and, and with you know, Chavez and the Bolivarian Revolution would resist. And there are over half a million members of the armed forces, and there's over 1 million in the civilian reserve. And there are people that you know, they will fight to defend their country and their sovereignty, even if they don't like Nicolas Maduro and they want change. They do not want a foreign invasion, and they certainly don't want it to be a U.S. invasion in their country. So, I, I you know, I think that's critical to understand that this is not a, a, a joke. <laughs> this is not all about just the rhetoric coming out, that there are clear interests here to take control of Venezuela's natural resources that has nothing to do with ideology, nothing at all. They could care less, you know, who's in power as long as whoever's in power is making the deals that the, you know the powerful multinationals want to be made, and so whatever it takes yeah. to get those, they they intend to do, and you know regardless of the fact that the Venezuelan government has been continuously making deals with with U.S. companies, you know it hasn't been to their satisfaction over the past fifteen years or so. So I, I do think that the, that this aggression will continue to increase as it has been over the past twenty years.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And and, uh, that's what I saw in Venezuela. And I was there much later. I was there in 2015. And but I I went and visited some of the communes. I went and spoke to some of the people in the working class neighborhoods and toured around not only Caracas, but elsewhere in the country. And my sense of it was certainly, uh, well, one thing one thing that should just be said is that in Venezuela, unlike, you know, the the perception that you might have from corporate media in the US and elsewhere, this is not some kind of Stalinist dictatorship where no one speaks their mind and everyone is afraid. I mean, when I was in Venezuela, boy, you should have heard the criticisms from Chavistas, from people who are supportive of the Bolivarian revolution against Maduro and against the current government, the PSUV, the Socialist Party, Uh, you know, I mean, blistering criticisms of them and uh, really quite, quite... uh, quite unrestrained, I would say. And it was really quite, uh, it was something to see when you go to places like Speaker's Corner and in Caracas and people are out there shouting slogans and so forth. It was vibrant, a vibrant political culture. And I was there when the right-wing opposition won for the first time in many, many years. And it was was quite a moment. And uh, speaking with people who were disillusioned with uh, the government, disillusioned with the progress of it, but still very much idealistic about it and still very much held chavez and the bolivarian revolution and the and the bolivarian dream in their hearts and i know that that is still the case despite all of the challenges despite everything that's going on that's still very much the case and i agree with you that if there is some kind of a direct military intervention by u.s military or proxies from the region and 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 mercenaries and others not only is there going to be resistance it's going to be the kind of resistance that i don't think the strategic planners in washington fully appreciate or understand
1: They do not. And for over a decade now, the Venezuelan military has been trained in a doctrine called the war of all the people. I I mean, and it's based on asymmetric or fourth generation warfare. So which which may sound, you know, like something from outer space to some of the listeners. But, you know, it's basically a guerrilla warfare doctrine. We could put it that way, where you know, people are, are trained to respond to threats of all sorts. So it doesn't doesn't mean that they're they're certainly not more powerful than any of the US military components, but they would definitely be empowered to respond. And they have acquired very advanced weapons also, um, you know, primarily from Russia, but also from China, from Iran, from, from other countries country. So they're equipped as well. I mean, it wouldn't be a, an easy operation. And, and the other aspect I wanted to just, you know, before we wrap up is that there's this image that you would think if you went to Venezuela, that you would just see people starving all over the streets and everything bare in every store everywhere. And that's a false image. It's not to discount the suffering of some people in Venezuela and the poverty that has definitely increased Venezuela. I know Maduro is still claiming um, data and figures that were based on Chavez's achievements, which have been rolled back by, you know, the crisis the country's faced and his his mismanagement and the the growth of corruption under his government. But at the same time, there's no comparison in terms of a crisis, a humanitarian crisis like in Yemen or that we've seen in Sudan, you know, or in the Congo or other or Haiti. I mean, I heard a comment made, I'm not sure if it was Elliot Abrams or Bolton or one of them saying that the humani- so-called humanitarian crisis in Venezuela is the worst the region has seen in recent history. And I thought, what kind of an, an outrageous statement is that? Not surprising from the likes of those people. But what about Haiti? Are you kidding me? I mean, come on.
0: What about, the, what, about only- Hon- what about Honduras as we speak?
1: Well, sure. I mean, all of Central America, which is still, you know, suffering from the ravages of Elliot Abrams and the Reagan administration, and you know, subsequent interventions and you know the the coup against Zelaya in two thousand nine in Honduras that increased, you know, repression and human rights, mass human rights violations. And I mean, it's no comparison. That again, that's not to underestimate or underplay or in any way, um, you know, demean the. the the suffering of people and the, the current rise in poverty in Venezuela, but does not rise to the levels of what would be considered under international laws a humanitarian crisis in the country that would require an intervention um, from you know the international community, which is precisely why the United Nations has said that they're not getting involved, <laughs> because they do not see Venezuela as a country with a humanitarian crisis. It's a country with a political crisis and with an economic crisis. But that those are crises that should be resolved through mediation and dialogue, not through foreign intervention. So, again, we come down to the fact of, well, why, what, you know, you know, why, why is the U.S. focusing so much on Venezuela? And, I mean, it's the oil. It's the oil.
0: Definitely, the oil plays a big part, and I think, uh, as as I mentioned earlier, I think some of the international issues, Russia's involvement, China's relationships, foothold in South America, a lot of geopolitical. all
1: about the oil. Who gets it? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah, Sure, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, uh, we're. Almost out of time, but I, I, we got to talk a little bit about your new book, Confidant of, quote, Tyrants, the American woman trusted by the U.S.'s biggest enemies. Very interesting title um, for those of us, for those of us who, uh, you know, are on the left and identify with Chavez and identify with Castro, with, with Venezuela, Cuba and the history of socialist revolutions in Latin America and elsewhere. It's kind of a provocative title. So tell us a little bit about the book, about the title and, uh, you know, what drove you to write this?
1: It's a title to make you read the book. <laughs> Precisely, it is provocative. And it's also to try to um, grab the attention of an audience that normally wouldn't read any books about Chavez or you know, Venezuela from the perspective of someone who was a friend of Chavez, which I was for many years and a close confidant or advisor to him as well. It's a memoir of my time um, in Venezuela. And how, why I was a part of the Bolivarian revolution, why I became a friend to Chavez, why I traveled the world with him, and also behind the scenes of what really went on, how the movement, you know, was built, um, what, how, what was the importance of his leadership And also experiences that I had with him around the world with the likes of Vladimir Putin and Bashar al-Assad and, you know, having dinner on camel, even though I did not eat any camel because I'm a vegetarian. But Chavez ate it and said it tasted like chicken when we were with Gaddafi in Libya. Um, And, you know, walking in the countryside with Bashar al-Assad and his wife and dining on, you know, authentic Syrian food at some roadside restaurant just a year before the war began or six months, actually, before the war began in that country. And those types of experiences that most Americans certainly never have had and giving a different perspective, not not justifying behavior of of any of these, you know, vilified leaders or controversial figures, but giving a different insider perspective, an insider outsider perspective, really, on my experience um, around them and, you know, behind the scenes of global power, how things, how decisions were made, um, which sometimes could be horrifying <laughs> to see, and I and I relate it also to it goes for Western democracies as well. A lot of you know decision making of power, the most powerful people that you may imagine would be based on some kind of strategic policy making takes place around you know a table or on a walk in in the countryside or through the plazas in old Havana with Fidel and and Chavez and they. Or someone just whispers something in the air and they say, OK, let's do that. You know, I mean, really, a lot of times that's how policy gets made or big decisions take place. And anyway, the book is, is a is is a memoir of my time with Chavez and also the story of um, of who he was and what he accomplished for Venezuela what his vulnerabilities were, the mistakes that he made, all of this, of course, from my my perspective, as it could be from no other when it's my book. Um, and, you know, what what happened afterward, after he died, what went wrong. I and I try to delve into some of the questions that that we ask about, you know, what what were the lessons that we learned from that movement and how we can, you know, grow take from that and do better. In terms of you know not making some of the same mistakes that were made in trying to build a social justice movement from the grassroots that had a very strong leadership at the top, because I think that was always one of the biggest criticisms from you know other intellectuals and um, you know other social activists around the world against Chavez or towards Chavez, such as Chomsky, who who often criticized the fact that Chavez had such a a charismatic leadership that it was top down all the time, even though the movement was trying to build a grassroots movement from the base up, that it was hard to do when you had such a powerful leadership. And so I think those are those are a lot of interesting questions that um, I discuss in the book and that are of interest to those today, you know, trying to, to build social justice movements. And and at the same time, it's also a book that's a critique on how democracy can erode into authoritarianism. How important it is that you know people's movements keep check on power. And I draw some parallels to what's taking place in the United States and how I see some alarming uh, trends happening here that you know need to be stifled before <laughs> they get any uh, bigger <laughs> in this country.
0: Yeah, I think that's very well said. And I just my last thing that I just want to say, too, is that just from from my own perspective and my own political evolution, Chavez was a giant for me. I mean, uh, for maybe for people who are older than me and maybe younger than me, uh, I don't know if it was as seminal of a moment. But for me, when Chavez went to the United Nations and called George Bush the devil, that was like, I mean, that was like earth shakingly important in my I own. Was there. yeah <laughs> Yeah. And, and and that's and that's why your book and your experiences are is really so critical, I think, for people to read because that moment was. I mean, that was a high water mark. Uh, Chavez's Chavez's uh, significance and importance went so far beyond Venezuela. I mean, it extended into the poor neighborhoods in the Bronx. It extended into various parts of of, of the global South. It extended all all, the all over the world.
1: Yeah, and uh, yeah. I mean, I talk about that. I traveled all around the world with him and saw you know grown men brought to tears in remote corners of, you know, Iran or in Ukraine, I mean, everywhere, everywhere, he was, he was loved and admired. And he was a giant, and there's no question. And, you know, I try to give an honest portrayal of of who he was and the incredible achievements that he was able to, you know, push forward in Venezuela, but at the same time, recognizing, and I think it's really important to understand, especially now that we're living this moment in the United States with Donald Trump, that these are human beings who are flawed, who are in power. And I mean, we know that being you know, those who may be critical of, of, of Trump. But when I look at those who support h- him, I try to understand you know, their perspective by looking back at you know, being by the side of Hugo Chavez, who was also, he was revered, but who was viciously hated and despised, and and seeing a lot of that, and seeing, you know, these are leaders, these are people who get into these positions of of tremendous power, and who remain the same people, human beings that they have been all their lives and that nothing changes necessarily they just accumulate all this enormous power and burden and responsibility and that also takes a toll on them as human beings and so i you know i try to also shed light a little bit on that in an honest way that what went on behind the scenes and and some of the difficulties that, that chavez faced with his own weaknesses just as a you know as a man and how how at times it was it was hard for him to to overcome Uh, situations in, in order to make the decisions and carry on as he needed to carry on. I mean, when he got tired, (laughs) but he still had to go out there and give a speech to, you know, the thousands of people who were awaiting him or make the decisions he had to make, even though, you know, he just wanted to take a nap or he just wanted to hang out and (laughs) have a home cooked meal. I mean, things that, you you take for granted and you think you, you know, these people get elections, they become public servants and we criticize every move they make. We love them or we hate them and we want them to, to make our lives better. But at the same time, you know, they're, they're still just people. (laughs) And so, I, I mean, I learned that lesson by seeing so many of these like vilified figures behind the scenes just in, in like their normal, you know, clothes I mean, saying that in a sort of symbolic way and in their normal lives. And and it, it gives you a sort of a different perspective on power.
0: Yeah, and you know what's interesting is that Chavez most certainly was a man, but in a sense he was he wasn't just a man, you know, because he was a man who stood up to the empire, and that's something that not very many men on this planet can or people, I should say, on this planet can really claim. And one of the things about Chavez that remains enduring long after he's 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 left this earth is the fact that he really represented the ideals of anti-imperialism, of social justice, of all all of these, uh, you know, these ideas that, that those of us on the left really hold dear and in many ways personified a lot of them with, you know, with all of the flaws, with all of the scars and all of that. And and for, for so for those reasons and for so many others, Chavez was so much more than a man to many of us.
1: He was and he gave his life for it.
0: Indeed. All right. Well, I, I've kept you well over the time, I promise. Um, so we'll have to leave it there. Eva Gollinger, uh, get the book Confidant of Tyrants, the American woman trusted by the U.S.'s biggest enemies. Uh, so I'm assuming Amazon and wherever books are sold, is there anywhere that you want people to go specifically to get it?
1: Well, it's published by New Internationalists, which is a small publisher out of the U.K. But Amazon is, you know, has become the the giant controller of all things, consumerism. So (laughs) everyone ends up going there anyway, because they always reduce the price.
0: Yeah. So, okay. (laughs) Get your, get your books at Amazon or wherever, wherever you can get them. Eva Gollinger, thanks so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio today. Really appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having me
0: on. Listeners. Thank you as always. And we'll chat again real soon.